1: Hi, and welcome to Between the Lines. On this show, you will hear about and from lesser known Canadian authors and writers who, for whatever reason, have remained under the radar of traditional publishers and publishing houses. If it has something to do with writing or the writing process, you are going to hear a discussion about it here. I'm your host, Randy Lacey, and I encourage you to grab your bevy of choice, get comfy, and get ready to go Between the Lines. People discover their love of writing in several different ways. For some, it was an introduction at school through writing assignments handed out by their teachers. For others, it may have been simply by reading and wondering if they might be able to write stories and poetry. Every writer has a different starting point in their writing journey. Each writer's journey will be different, yet similar, but the one thing all writers share in common is a different destination. Hi and welcome to another episode of Between the Lions. I'm your host, Randy Lacey, and on this episode I will be speaking with Aaron Patterson. Hello, Aaron, and welcome to Between the Lines.
2: Hi, Randy. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here.
1: Oh, not as excited as I am, because that means <laughs> I get to stay busy. So rather than have me read a blurb about you. I'm certain they'd rather hear from your own mouth. So if you don't mind, could you please give our listening audience a brief bio of yourself?
2: Sure. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, I live in Toronto, Ontario, with my husband, Daniel, and my nine-year-old daughter, Emma. When I'm not writing, I love to do anything that's sports-related. I am a huge runner. I've completed a full marathon and about 13 half marathons. I haven't been doing much since COVID, though. There aren't very many big races these days. Um, And I also play volleyball with my husband, Daniel, every Wednesday night. And as a family, we recently took up rock climbing and are going to the rock climbing gym with our daughter twice a week. I am a published author, a public speaker, and a Huntington's disease advocate. I have had my stories published in two anthologies and over a dozen different websites. And my first book just came out a couple of weeks ago, which is very, very exciting.
1: And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yes. Anything else to add? Uh,
2: about, about me? What about you. No, that's it.
1: <laughs> rock climbing. Oh, my goodness. Yes.
2: Well, I'm 46 years old and I haven't rock climbed in 15 years, but this is a particular kind of rock climbing called bouldering, which is climbing on lower walls without a harness. So there are big two to three foot wide mats at the bottom of the wall which you fall onto if you make a mistake. So just getting up the guts to try a move and knowing that you might fall is the first challenge of for for me for learning how to boulder with my daughter, but she is just like a little spider going up and down the wall and encouraging me on all of the time. <laughs> but but for me my body doesn't rebound as quickly as hers.
1: Nope. The older bodies don't, do they?
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm proud of myself just for trying it at that age.
1: And you should be. Most of the listeners who have listened repeatedly know that I'm visually impaired. And from where I sit, looking at you on this Zoom video, right now, you don't look crazy, but you certainly <laughs> say that you're acting crazy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do a, a lot of adventurous things, for sure.
1: Well, yeah, there's all kinds of different adventuring things, I guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, me, me and my husband, we the most adventurous thing we ever did was for our 10-year anniversary. We followed the Trail of the Gold Miners in the Yukon. So we hiked the Chilkoot Trail, which was a 52-kilometer trail up and over a mountain. So it started in Skagway, Alaska and ended up in um, northern BC. So we spent our longest day of hiking was 10 hours straight of hiking. And we carried everything with us on, on our backs, including all of our food, our tents, toothbrushes, you know, a very limited amount of clothing because you didn't want your backpack to be too heavy. Mm -hmm. But even with limited stuff, my backpack was about 35 pounds and towered above my head.
1: (laughs) But in the gold rush days, anybody going to the Klondike for that purpose had to carry a year's worth of food with them.
2: Yeah. So they had to do the trip multiple times.
1: Yes. Yeah. Terry, who I mentioned earlier, my first interview, she's done a lot of stuff up in the Yukon. I think Dawson City is a really home away from home. All right, so let's get right to the questions then. I guess the first one we're going to have to ask you is, was there any book or article or even a poem, I guess, which inspired you to want to write?
2: So I have always been a huge reader, but I had never thought about writing anything until an event that happened in my life. So it was an unfortunate event which inspired me to write. When I was 31 years old, I had just completed my dream of running a full marathon. I had opened my own business, and it was finally reaching a stage of success where I got a decent salary. My husband had a good job. We had just bought our first condo, so we felt established and ready to start a family. So we had gone over to my parents' house to announce that we were ready to have children. And we excitedly said over brunch, hey, mom and dad, guess what? You're going to be grandparents next year. And our announcement wasn't met with the fanfare that we had expected. As I was growing up, my mom ran a daycare out of our house and she loved children and I loved children. And I would rush home from school every day to play with the kids. So I thought that my parents would be so excited to be grandparents. Mm -hmm. So we were more than confused about their reaction. It wasn't until about a week later that we found out the reason for their dulled down response. What we learned at the time was that it was suspected that my grandmother might have died from a neurological condition called Huntington's disease, which is also genetic. So that meant if my grandmother had the disease, there was a potential that she had passed it on to my father. And if my father had the disease, there was a 50% chance that... He could have passed it on to me, which in turn meant that any children I had were at risk for getting the disease as well. So within a short eight months, I made the decision to get tested for the genetic disease Mm -hmm. and found out that I was gene positive for Huntington's disease. So Huntington's disease is a degenerative neurological condition that causes cognitive impairment, emotional issues and uncontrolled movements. And many people describe it like a mix of Alzheimer's, ALS, and Parkinson's altogether. Wow. So being gene positive for the disease means that I will get the disease one day. I just don't know when the symptoms will start. So I don't have the disease yet, but I will have it in the future.
1: So there's no established timeline. It could, it could happen when you're in your 70s or in your 50s.
2: So the average age of onset is between 35 and 55 years of age, okay. and a lot of people pass away from it in their 50s and 60s. Um, in my family, it seems to be a little bit later onset. So my grandmother was in her 70s when she passed away, and my dad is now 78, and he's still living with the disease. Hmm. Um, and it's we suspect he didn't start showing symptoms until his late 50s.
1: Have you had your daughter tested?
2: No, uh, because my daughter is adopted. So that's the ending of the the story, the good part of the story. <laughs> but as you can imagine, finding out that I was gene positive for this disease sort of threw my life for a loop. I bet. And I was plunged into a severe depression. I thought, what's the point of even living if I know that this awaits me in the future? I was terrified that my husband was going to leave me. I thought if people found out about my genetic status that they wouldn't want to be friends with me. I thought there was no way I'd ever make a new friend again because I thought who would want to make friends with somebody who's defective. That's how I viewed myself as defective. I can only see myself as the disease. I didn't see myself as an individual person anymore. So, And in the midst of all that, my husband and I were trying to make the decision, okay, now that I know I have the disease and there's a chance for me to pass it on to our children, what are we going to do about having kids? So that was a gut-wrenching time for us. And it was very hard to make that decision in the midst of all that turmoil in our life and going while going through a depression. Can you imagine trying to decide what to do about having family? But we are 31 years old and our biological clocks were already ticking, so we made the best decision we could with the information we had available to us at the time. And we said, well, my life has value as a person who is gene positive for HD, and so will the life of our child if they happen to inherit the disease from us. So we went ahead and tried to have a family. Unfortunately, after a year of trying, we still weren't pregnant, and we ended up seeking the help of a fertility doctor. So we went through... Two and a half years of fertility treatments and nothing worked. (laughs) So that in itself was a very trying experience because going through fertility treatments is kind of like having a part time job that you have to wake up at five in the morning and be at the clinic doors as soon as they open. And sometimes you would be at the clinic for three hours before going into work for 9 a.m. Uh, so you have all sorts of tests run and, and blood tests done, meeting with the doctor, and you would have to do this for about two weeks straight until you ovulate, and then you get a break of two weeks off from the clinic, and then at the end of that two weeks, you do a blood test to see if you're pregnant. Mm. And if you're not pregnant, then you have two days to mourn the loss of that cycle and not getting pregnant, and then you have to go back in and start the whole process over again. What was particularly challenging on top of that was each month I had to ask myself, am I sure that I'm still okay with the, the chance of passing the disease on to our child? So even though I was trying to heal from my HD diagnosis, it kept getting brought up month after month after month mm. as we tried to have a child. So it, it sort of prolonged the pain for me.
1: So if I was hearing you correctly uh, a little earlier, you maybe inadvertently, but you, you allowed the disease to define you. Is that correct?
2: Yes, a hundred percent.
1: Yeah. And, uh, but you've got a, a, a wonderful nine year old daughter now. And yes. You're enjoying the, the benefits of motherhood. She's enjoying the benefits of your, your parenting. So, I mean, it's, to hear everything that you've just laid out about what has happened in your life, to hear you laugh right now encourages me. So keep laughing, keep smiling. And yes. uh, you know what? It's giving you plenty of material to write about.
2: Oh, yes. I wrote an entire 327-page book about this. <laughs> but yes, I, I it took a lot of time to come to terms with my diagnosis for Huntington's disease and to come to terms with being an infertile woman. I went through a lot of therapy. And from the very beginning, when I was going through all of that, I always thought to myself, I don't want these things to ruin my life. I want to be happy again. And I actively worked to find that happiness.
1: Well, good for you. And I'm glad you you found that happiness.
2: Yes. And being a mother is a huge part of it, for sure.
1: Absolutely. And your husband has been support supportive throughout the whole Of course.
2: Yeah, he's he's been beyond supportive. I couldn't have asked for a more supportive spouse, 100%.
1: Well, that's why you married him, I hope.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) Were you one of those writers uh, who kept everything locked up inside to yourself? Or are you one of those brave souls, I'll call you, who just put it all out there and said, here,
2: read this? I definitely kept it to myself because I was terrified of what I was even writing. In my family, everybody's very secretive about Huntington's disease and doesn't talk about it much. And I eventually got tired of living with a secret and thought, I'm just going to write a book. I I always had, since my diagnosis, I felt this draw to write a book. I didn't know where it came from. I just knew it was something that I needed to do. But because I didn't understand it, I questioned it extensively extensively. No, I, I doubted myself. I thought, Oh my gosh, am I so conceited that I need to write a book about myself? Do I like just wallowing in my own self pity? Those were the things that were going through my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning, I would sit in my office and not let anybody see what I was doing. And I spent a lot of time typing away on my computer. It was very hard. So I actually hired a writing coach and a lot of what she did was to help me come out of my shell and to tell me that yes, Your story has meaning. Your story has purpose. Other people, it will help other people. You should be writing about this. So that's a lot of the coaching that she did for me. So I was just going to say, eventually, when I was starting to build my author platform, so I wasn't near to publishing my book yet. But as we all know, we have to build up our author platform if we hope to get a publishing deal or we want to make connections with readers. So I started guest blogging. So the first time I had a guest blog go up online, it was terrifying. (laughs) The fact that people were reading my writing and my deepest, darkest fears was out there for everybody to read. And not only that, it was the very first time I had ever publicly associated myself with Huntington's disease. And a lot of people who are Facebook friends and friends in real life didn't even know. So it was kind of like coming out from that secrecy in a very, very public way. Since then I've done a lot of guest blogging and it has gotten much easier.
1: I guess you're trying to build a profile and you want to put these feelings and thoughts down and you're so terrified you can't go anonymous because you want people to know who you
2: are. Because
1: there yeah. are there are anonymous bloggers, right? So
2: Right. Yeah, I want people to know who I am and I, I wanted to be a genuine person and talk about these sorts of things and open up conversation about it. Because in my life, I couldn't find anybody who was talking about these things. And I just wanted to say, hey, here's how I feel. And it's okay if you feel that way. Or it's okay if you feel differently. And it's okay if you have feelings about all of these big things that are happening in your life. And I'm going to talk about it so that you know other people are thinking about these things too.
1: An unfortunate thing though is that so you think of celebrities who, you know, like Michael J. Fox or I, I don't know anybody with Huntington's a celebrity, but if they get a debilitating disease and they bring it to the forefront, everybody's behind it. But, you know, the, the smaller people, the, the normal people in life, they get something and they want to share, but nobody really cares because we're no, we're nobody. I mean, I'm a blind guy. You know, who really cares?
2: The message that I get, especially from the book world, is that unless you're a famous person, nobody would want to read your memoir. Mm -hmm. But I completely disagree with that. Yay. uh, Because I am a huge memoir reader, and most of the memoirs I've read, the people weren't famous before they wrote them. Yeah. They got famous because they wrote them.
1: I'll be long dead before I get famous.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, you just have to start writing now.
1: (laughs) I've got a memoir. I just... yeah. Uh, what is your philosophy about writer's block?
2: Oh, for me, writer's block is all about self-doubt and fear. <laughs> so anytime that I was avoiding writing, it was because I was afraid of something. Uh, it was because I was afraid that maybe I wasn't a good writer and that my writing really sucked and nobody would tell me. Well, that, you know, once stuff started going out there on blogs and stuff, I was especially afraid that people would get mad about at me about for what I was writing about because I I was writing about a a lot of personal stuff related to my family right okay and some of the stuff that I wrote about was not necessarily nice things things that had happened to me or things that people had said to me that I had a problem with and I was writing about it to say this is why I had a problem with it this is how it could have been handled differently or more sensitively right
1: that is the problem with memoirs though isn't it Someone's yes. always going to get offended because their version of the truth is different.
2: Yes. Yeah. So especially in a family where everything is a big secret, mm-hmm. for me to be revealing the family secret.
1: There's three sides was to very the story. Hard. Their side, your side and the truth.
2: <laughs> and the truth is a mix of everything in between, right? Isn't
1: that, isn't that right?
2: <laughs> I was going to say, I also find that I get writer's block when I'm exploring a new topic or writing about something from my past that I don't quite understand yet. So there was one chapter in particular in my book that I wrote 30 times because when I was writing it I thought oh my gosh I did that? Why did I do that? (laughs) And in retrospect I couldn't understand the decision that I made and it took me writing it out 30 times to kind of Come to some kind of conclusion about why I acted the way I acted in that moment.
1: So the the block for you then was not I don't have anything to write or can't find anything to write about. It was what you were writing about that was preventing you from writing.
2: Yes. Right. Yeah. Getting over my fear of writing about that topic.
1: Get over yourself. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't want to come across as being mean here. Oh,
2: no, no worries.
1: Do you have a, a secret writing place you uh, you hide yourself away in?
2: So I, I'm usually writing in my office, which has a nice view out the front window. My desk is right in front of the window. Nice. In the beginning, when I started writing, I'd, I had this whole big routine. I'd have to, like, psych myself up to get into the mood for writing I'd have to put on my writing sweater and get a a hot cup of tea and have that right next to me. And I had a white noise machine that I would turn on. It was like from leftover from when my daughter was a baby. You know, those machines that just sound like air conditioners running. And I'd put that on in the loudest setting so that I couldn't even hear the telephone ringing in the next room. And it would be after my daughter had gone to bed and I would sit at my desk and write. And nobody could come into the office at all because I didn't want... Anybody, not even my husband, to get a glimpse of what I was even thinking about. I didn't want anybody to see my unformed thoughts because it was kind of like a diary. Yeah. In a way. You know, yeah. I can see that. Now I'm not so bad. I can write in coffee shops. One of my favorite places to write is while well, I'm getting an oil change at the car dealer, <laughs> but Explain. I have to be sitting with my back against the wall so nobody could see my screen. <laughs>
1: and why why are you so comfortable there doing it
2: uh there's just a lot of white noise right okay and there's no distractions there's no dishes to clean or anything like that
1: based on your answer that brings up another question then i like to have lots of music playing when i write not for you
2: uh no complete silence really uh, yeah i mix up the words if i had music playing but like in my life in general, I like complete silence. I don't really like a lot of noise. I, I prefer stillness and silence. Even when in, in my house all day long, I never have the TV or the radio on or when I'm driving, I rarely have it on.
1: Really? Yeah. Uh, I've talked to a few people that it's gotta be music, it's gotta be heavy metal or it's gotta be classical or, and yeah. Yeah, I think you're the first one that says, no, I need silence. I mean, okay. I, don't, I don't <laughs> go crazy with silence.
2: Do you listen to classical music? I can understand classical, but heavy metal—I'm wow, that's impressive.
1: I have a 15-hour playlist that I play when I'm writing, mm-hmm. and it goes—it covers the whole gamut right from classical right up to thrash metal. Wow! Oh yeah.
2: And do, you, do you do you have to put it on a certain part of the playlist when you're writing? A you know, maybe you're having a more emotional moment. You need classical music, or
1: uh, you know what? Sometimes I let the music dictate whatever yeah so and then you know find a place for it
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's interesting
1: usually works best who's doing the interview here lady (laughs) (laughs) that's that's interesting though I yeah silence I would go crazy with my thoughts is there a certain time of day where you find yourself more productive uh
2: well I always write in the evenings because I didn't have a choice I was working and then I had a, I, I was my daughter was only four or five years old when I started writing, so I would write every evening after she went to bed for two or three hours a night. Okay. So after work I was trying to fit in ten to fifteen hours of writing every week, which was a lot to fit in on a busy schedule. Um I am not one of those people who can wake up early and write. Plus my daughter is an early riser and she's up at five thirty every day and My husband's in construction, so he also gets up early and is at work by seven. So the morning is not the time for me.
1: You, in giving your answer, I'm not one of those people who can get up.
2: (laughs) I love sleeping. So why would I get up 15 minutes earlier than I have to? (laughs) It's hard for me now that I've uh, been unemployed for a couple of months. It's so hard not to have a nap.
1: (laughs) Well, there's that, isn't there? So you say evenings is your probably most productive time because of, but now that that because of isn't really because of anymore because you don't have a job, you're yeah. at home. So have you maintained that or have you changed it or?
2: So my goal is to get in five to six hours of work a day. I find I can't do more than two or three hours during the daytime. So it's about 50-50, but I find it much harder to get into the zone of doing things during the day. Okay. At, at night, it just seems to come easier. I don't know if it's because of habit. I'm not sure.
1: You'll figure it out one day.
2: Yeah. And then then it'll change. <laughs> yes.
1: New habits are formed. Yeah. So you you mentioned just in the, the last few sen- sentences ago, uh, goal. So what is your writing goal?
2: specifically writing um, well my next goal is to work on a book with my daughter she really she is really invested in my book publishing journey she's very cute she made up little posters that for me about my book and then when we went to the grocery store she asked the cashier if she could hang it up on the community notice board <laughs> so and she actually designed the cover of my book where did she and there's a, yeah yeah she designed it i had a cover and she didn't like it and she didn't tell me and then one day she went down to the basement and got out her watercolor paints and painted me a new book cover. And then I just posted something online just saying, oh, isn't this cute? My daughter did this for me. And the guy who designed my original book cover said, oh, you should totally use hers. It's better. <laughs> and I thought he was joking, but he was serious. So I now he's, a professional. he is a professional, yes, but he's also a very good friend of mine. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she's a book cover designer. So we're going to work on a book for um, preschoolers about Huntington's disease.
1: Oh, nice.
2: Yeah. And then um, she wants to, she's very into writing and is really into Greek mythology and horror books. So she's writing her own little mashup (laughs) Greek mythology (laughs) slash horror slash I survived this tragedy type book. So I told her, If she works really hard on that, I would publish it for her.
1: Good for you. Good for her. You don't hear a lot of that from kids these days.
2: Well, we're lucky. That is one of the really amazing things that came out of COVID. So I've always read in front of her and always been a big reader. And she always knew that I was writing. But she's an only child. And we're at home with not much to do. So the neighbor gave her a box of books from their basement, Mm. which were the horror books. Uh, which I thought would give her nightmares, but she loves. And she read through this giant pile of books over a couple of months, and she hasn't stopped reading since.
1: Clearly, Stephen King's "It" wasn't in that pile of books.
2: Oh no, they're like you know teenager horror books.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. That's <laughs> yeah. Incredible. No, that's that's good for your neighbor to do that. All right, next question. Then they say to read a lot in the genre you wish to write in. Do you agree?
2: A hundred percent. Yeah, I I read tons and tons of memoirs, especially when I was going through those troubling times in my life. For me, reading a memoir was getting a sneak peek into another person's life, and I focused on reading books about people overcoming tragedies, or people deciding if they wanted to live child free, or people going through infertility, because. I could learn from them. So maybe there might be just one or two things out of the entire book that I would make a connection with or learn from, but that would be enough to help me get through to the next day because it felt like somebody understood what I was going through. But when I was writing my memoir, I couldn't read any memoirs because then I instantly compared my rough draft to their final version and I would always think, oh my God, mine sucks. (laughs) I know, but you can't help but do it because you dream of being a writer who writes like this. Like my, my dream memoir writer is Maggie O'Farrell. She has a book called I am, I am, I am. And it's a series of short stories about how she cheated death in her life. And every single word is perfect. And every single word means something. And I just wanted to be a writer that was as concise as she was. So I just had to put all memoirs aside for a good three years while I was writing my book. oh wow, instead, I focused more on reading historical fiction or murder mysteries
1: that's um well, it's a good perspective to have though I guess we're gonna we're gonna go into our next section, part two, which i've I don't know why I called it this, but working hard for the money because that's what mm-hmm. we've got to do as writers, don't we? Yes. We've got to put ourselves out there. We've got to put our best foot out there and say, this is what we have. This is what we do. Support me. And that's really (laughs) what it is. So this is the part of the show where you get to talk about your published uh, works or work or your current work in progress. So talk.
2: Oh, so I just published my book about two weeks ago. The print book came out. Three weeks ago, the e-book came out. So my memoir is called All Good Things, a memoir about genetic testing, infertility, and one woman's relentless search for happiness. Currently, it's on Amazon. I will be expanding the distribution to a wider distribution in the new year. Um, But for now, it was a big enough challenge just to get it up onto Amazon. (laughs) Um, I have also opened up a publishing company. It's called Lemonade Press. And my publishing company is focused on publishing and empowering medical anthologies. And I have a goal to publish two anthologies next year. Um, I think I'll probably be starting with the one about Huntington's disease and have stories from the Huntington's disease community, from people with juvenile Huntington's. Uh, late onset Huntington's and things like caregivers, doctors and scientists all contributing their perspective. I am also having one about, called Path to Parenthood about the many different ways people create their families and a third book on rare diseases. So Huntington's disease is a rare disease. What oh, is? Um, yeah, yeah. So there's lots of rare diseases out there that don't get a lot of attention. So, I My aim is to have 20 different rare diseases represented in the one anthology.
1: In the transcripts, we'll put down all the links and everything for people to go directly to it. Yeah, okay. So is there is there one you're more particularly proud of? Like, I you know you've got that one, but are you working on another one that you might say, hey, I think this one's going to be better or it's already better or...
2: In terms of, like, a book with the publishing company? Yeah. Or or a different book? Like, I would like to have part two of All Good Things. I think um, focusing more on being a caregiver for my father. That would be nice. Well, you know. Find something like that.
1: You know how that expression or that saying goes. All good things come to an end. But yep. What's the end? I mean, it doesn't have to be the end, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, and for me, the expression, all good things, wasn't about that phrase Uh, it was more about ever since I had those horrible things happen to me I thought I wanted to take this bad thing and turn it into something good somehow I didn't want it to ruin my life and I wanted to be happy again so the whole last section of the book is about how those bad things were in fact good things in the end because it gave me a greater appreciation of life It gave me a different perspective on life. And it definitely gave me a purpose in life as well. Mm -hmm. Like for me, getting this memoir out and helping other people who are in a similar situation is, it feels to me, part of my life purpose. And it's not just people with Huntington's disease or people who are infertile that can benefit from reading the book. There's hundreds of genetic diseases that can be tested for now. And a lot of the diseases, there's nothing you can do to treat them. So it's a hard place to live, knowing that you're going to get something, but there's nothing you can do about it. And I just felt it was very important for people to be aware of how hard that is emotionally to live with. So even though I don't have the disease yet, it it has affected my life mm-hmm. in huge, huge ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So good for you for doing what you're doing and, and continue doing that. Two more questions. One uh, MTV had a, a show, and it was basically they were asking celebrity singers or whatever, rock stars, is there a song that you wish that you wrote? So to you, is there a poem, short story, uh, novel that you wish you had written? Uh,
2: the book that I wish I had written is yeah. one of my favorite books of all time by Anthony Dewar, and it's called All the Light We Cannot See. Is an amazing book. And interestingly, the one of the main characters in the book is blind. And the that thing is. that I found amazing was how he described the world from the perspective of a blind person. And I understood it from that perspective because he was so good in his details. He's, he's very detailed and talks about like a seashell and all of the lines in a seashell. Like he gets very descriptive into minute things, but I just love his style of writing. And it's one of those stories where it's from two different perspectives. So I think it was a, a boy, German boy in the war and a French girl in the war And and it, eventually how their stories come together but you don't know they're going to come together until three quarters of the way through the book.
1: Until they come together.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's one of those stories you have to read over and over again, because sometimes when the first time you read it, you're totally confused as to what's going on.
1: Okay. Fair enough. So when people get that perspective and you know, there's not every situation or circumstance where people can get full perspective, but when they do it, it opens, well, pardon the pun, but it opens their eyes. Mm-hmm. Due to the to the actual situation and it changed their tune social media where can people find you
2: uh facebook linkedin and instagram under what um, on instagram i am aaron patterson underscore all good things and on facebook and linkedin it's just aaron patterson and then also my website is aaronpatterson.com and it's patterson with one t why one t <laughs> that's the name <laughs> i don't know i don't know the history of why it's one t but it's a pain in the rear because everybody always puts two <laughs> right. well and
1: it's been a pleasure to get to know you thank you so much for doing this good luck with your book good luck with your future book and i really hope you and your daughter get to put that book out together
2: we will for sure thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate the time to speak with you
1: You have been listening to Between the Lines with Randy Lacey. In future episodes, I will be talking with authors and writers from across the country about all things writing. So if you like what you heard, I encourage you to tune in to some future episodes of Between the Lines.
0: In business, you rarely hear the expression for life.